Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians. Today we are starting a study of the book of Philippians, which we're going to be in for 21 weeks. I've worked it out. It's going to be 21 weeks long. And I'm certainly looking forward to that. Tim Corris is going to be in in his element, knowing that we're once again in a letter taking our time. Over the last couple of years, we've done a couple of different things. We've done the Gospel of John, and which we took our time through, obviously a gospel. We did the book of Acts, narrative, historical narrative. We went into Isaiah and did some prophecy. We find ourselves once again in the letters, and I couldn't be more excited about being in the letters, and in particular this letter, the book of Philippians. It's a letter that's theological. There are some wonderful Christological passages in it. We're going to see Christ a lot. And we are going to certainly get to the heights of Christological passages as we examine him, particularly in Philippians 2. This book is also missional. We examine what it really means to truly partner together in the gospel, both with ourselves and beyond ourselves. And it's a book that is highly relational. It talks a lot about Christian living and unity. And so it's a truly wonderful book. And today we're going to start with two verses commonly known as the greeting, and yet what we're going to discover, I hope today, is that it it is a lot more than just a greeting. So let's look together at verse 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus whom are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you. And peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Lord, how wonderful it is to be gathered around your word. And this morning we do all sit under your word. You are speaking to us. Your word that was written then is still alive today, sharper than a double-edged sword. And so, Lord, would it pierce our souls today? Would it deeply affect us? Father, would you encounter us through your Spirit? And would you point us to your Son? And would we be changed as we examine this wonderful letter that you have breathed? In Jesus' name, amen. One afternoon, Sinclair Ferguson writes, Around 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, a small group of travelers made their way in the northwesterly direction from the port of Neapolis, where they had recently landed from Troas. They journeyed, presumably on foot, for a further 10 miles or so along the great Roman road called the Via Ignatia, until they came to the city of Philippi. Many people probably passed that little group of travelers, without giving any of them a second look, not realizing these were the men who were gaining the reputation of having caused trouble all over the world. They included Silas, young Timothy, and apparently Luke, the medical doctor. In this modest fashion, Paul's mission team, with his message of Jesus Christ as crucified and risen Savior and Lord, moved for the first time to European soil. And although their first visit was relatively brief, it was nonetheless action-packed. And that it was. Paul's original trip to Philippi was indeed brief, 
but it was, as Mr. Ferguson writes, action-packed. See, we read about it in the book of Acts in chapter 15, and then in chapter 16. In Acts chapter 15, Paul is convinced that he's got it all worked out. He's going to take his team of four, himself, Dr. Luke, Timothy, and Silas. He's going to take them around, and he's going to strengthen and care for all the churches that he planted on his first missionary trip. And that's all he wants to do. He just wants to go around those churches, see how they're going, strengthen them, care for them as they seek to build around the gospel in their various different places. And that was going all right to start off with. But as he finished up in Galatia, he attempts to move south to Asia, and yet the Holy Spirit prevents him. So he seeks to go north to Bithynia and senses once again the Holy Spirit preventing him. So he continues west to Troas, a a port city that further out west there is just an ocean and then Europe, which is known then as Macedonia. And as Paul settled down for the night in Troas, this port city, he encounters God in a dream and he sees a man from Macedonia calling him to go over to Macedonia, to modern day Europe. Well, this is a great change of Paul's plans. But he realizes the Lord is in this, so he awakes the next day, and immediately he sets sail to the city of Philippi. And as soon as he lands in Europe for the very first time, great action-packed things start to happen. You see, Philippi is an incredible city. It is a leading city in the district of Macedonia. It's a Roman colony. became a Roman colony in 168 B.C., And as a Roman colony, it would have had many privileges and immunities that came with that. They would barely pay any tax, for example, being a Roman colony. It sounds quite nice. It's also heavily steeped in Greek tradition, Greek culture, Greek architecture. One of the great amphitheaters was in Philippi. Europe, he's not there to check out the architecture. He's there to preach Christ and him crucified. And so it comes to the very first Sabbath day in Philippi. And as was customary, Paul wants to engage with the Jews and God-fearers that would have, in custom here, gathered to pray to the Lord and read Old Testament Scripture. Well, there was no synagogue in Philippi. It was a Greek city. I mean, it was by nature, not not built around Jewish customs. So there was no synagogue. So the Jews and the God-fearers would gather around a river or an ocean. It just had to be outdoors and near water. So Paul goes to look about, and he comes across this group of ladies, one of whom was Lydia. He sees them praying, he starts to talk to them, and he begins to preach to them about Christ and him crucified. He tells them about what Jesus Christ has done, that everything they see in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And Lydia, along with this group of ladies, in that moment became Christians. He he saw to the fact that they were saved, he baptized them. In that very moment, the very first church on European soil was born with Lydia and these ladies. Lydia herself, a businesswoman, a seller of purple cloths. She was loaded. And so straight away she says to Paul, I want to help you. I want to help this mission. They're the type of people you want in your church plant. You know what I'm saying? You want people that are loaded and passionate about Jesus. Well, Paul starts with one of those. And so they start to crescendo in the passion for preaching the gospel. And they start to go out as Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, along with Lydia and these ladies, and they start to tell people about Jesus and pray. 
And it would appear that there is a young lady that is following them around. And it would appear, at least to start off with, that she's a big supporter of what's going on. And so she shouts at Paul and this, this small original church. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Man, that sounds intriguing, doesn't it? A few of us rock into Hornsby as a church and this small girl over the back starts declaring that, you know what, these guys are going to be sharing with you about Jesus. It would appear to be a good thing. Until Paul realizes this girl is demon-possessed. She's doing it to taunt them. She's doing it to ridicule them. And so Paul, angered by that, not angered by the girl, but angered by the fact that she's demon-possessed, turns around and commands in the name of Jesus that that demon comes out of her. That's exactly what happens. This demon-possessed girl, in a moment, is released from this demon. She gives her life to Jesus Christ. And now this local church is starting to gather some pace. There's Lydia and her friends. There's this demon-possessed girl that's now been saved by God's amazing grace. Well, this local church that seems to start in great peace soon becomes troubled. See, this slave girl is not just any any demon-possessed girl. She's a demon-possessed slave girl. She's owned by somebody. And she's owned by somebody that is basically pimping this girl out to tell people's fortunes. She has this gift because she's demon-possessed about being able to see future and do different things like that. But it would appear that now the demon is released from her. She can't do that anymore. And so the owner of this girl... And those around this girl who enjoyed the fact that she could tell the future start to really hit on Paul and Silas. They drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace and they command the magistrates to do something with them. Because this these guys are are wrecking our situation here in Philippi. And the magistrates in that moment, they arrest Paul. They arrest Silas. They begin to beat them. They strip them naked. They beat them with rods and they throw them in prison. See, it's important to note as we look at that, Satan does not like seeing local churches get off the ground. You know, while there are people in church and Christian going, this is great, let's plant churches. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion doing everything he can to stop them. He'll bring disunity. He will allow disappointment to take place in the midst of life and then not to be dealt with well and bitterness and anger starts to be caused. Things happen in church life that you look on and you think, what's that? It's gone so well before. The evil one prowls around. He's trying to destroy local churches. And Paul and Silas recognize that straight away. And so at midnight as they're flung into prison... There is this distinct sound, not of moaning and complaining, which proves they're not British. There is a distinct sound of singing hymns and praying. These two men that have planted this church are now sitting in prison and they are singing songs to God, declaring to him of his greatness and his majesty and his worth and praying to him. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard that? Wouldn't you have loved to have witnessed that? If you were a prisoner sitting alongside him, you must have thought, what is, what is going on? Well, God heard their prayers and God heard their singing. And in a moment, a mighty earthquake came on that prison and the prison doors flung open. They were released from the shackles they were in. 
There is chaos and just pandemonium started to break out in this prison as the earthquake starts to take effect. The jailer runs in. It is pitch black. He can't see a thing. All the lights have gone out. He is convinced that surely all the prisoners will have run out. And I am doomed. So he takes his sword out and he is about to literally jump onto his own sword to end his life. Because he knows the consequences of seeing people released from his prison. And as Paul sees him in the distance doing that, he shouts, stop! And this jailer, this Philippian jailer, runs to Paul. He he makes him out, he runs to him, and immediately he says this, what must I do to be saved? He's aware, surely this is God. I've heard you singing, I've heard you praying. What is this all about? And Paul in that moment preaches the gospel to this Philippian jailer. And this Philippian jailer is dramatically saved along with his entire household, who he also gathers in and around to hear this gospel message. He sees them come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior that night. They were baptized that night. And this church is beginning to grow. Lydia and the ladies around her. This ex-demon-possessed slave girl who's now free to live in Christ. This Philippian jailer and, and his family and this local church, this church plant, the very first church in Europe, has been birthed. Well, the next day after that earthquake, Paul is asked to leave the city. See, the magistrates that saw Paul beaten and arrested were not aware that he's a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, you you cannot be beaten and thrown in jail without being tried, and they didn't try him. So they're now trying to save face. They're aware this is going to be so difficult now. And, and, And Paul, you are indeed raising up different things in our city. Would you leave? Would you please leave? And Paul makes it clear to them, you know, I I will leave. But I'm leaving through the front door. Because I want everybody to know that, that I'm innocent. But if you'll let me leave through the front door and you'll take me out through the front door of this jail, I will leave this city. Because Paul realizes that his brief expedition in Philippi has come to an end. And although it has been action-packed, it was always meant to be brief. And so Paul leaves through the front of that jail... He spends time with the Philippian jailer and his family. He spends time with this slave girl. He spends time with Lydia and their friends. He's aware that in this moment a church has been planted. And then he leaves. But this local church would always have a special place in Paul's heart. This local church would live with him as a pastor. And if you are a pastor, which I am, and understand this, churches aren't just numbers. They're not just random people. They're people you're you're bothered about. And Paul was there when he saw these people get saved, one by one. It was a local church that he would treasure in his heart for the rest of his life. And Paul would always have a special place in their hearts as well. And so 15 years on from the planting of this Philippian church, when this Philippian church hears that Paul is now in prison in Rome, which we hear about towards the end of the book of Acts, 
As this church hears about this, they send one of their best, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, to make contact with Paul and to support him, to minister him, to encourage him and to help him, knowing that he's under house arrest in Rome. Well, it would appear that Epaphroditus is there sometime, ministering to Paul, caring for Paul, giving Paul the offering that this church had taken for him. Encouraging him, praying with him, also communicating some of the challenges that are happening in the church of Philippi. And this letter that we have before us is the letter that he writes back in response to that visit from Epaphroditus. Fifteen years on, having planted this church, this church still has a special place in Paul's heart. And so having received Epaphroditus, having received the gift, he's aware of Epaphroditus, I want to encourage that church again. You go get me that pen and paper. Because I've got a few things I want to share with them. And this is the letter. See, many of us would no doubt be familiar with Paul as a theologian, incredible theologian. Paul is a uh, missiologist, so a strategic one at that, in the way he would structure taking the, the, the gospel to key cities all the time. We'd also know him as a courageous apostle, wouldn't we? I mean, he's always getting beaten up. There's one time later on that he gets left for dead. They reckon he is dead, so they leave him. Gets up the next day, dusts himself off, and gets back in and tells them about Jesus again. I mean, I love that. That's my type of guy. I'm not that type of guy, but I love that type of guy. I'd love to serve with that type of guy. It's just awesome. Paul is also all those things. He is a courageous apostle. He is a strategic missiologist. He is an incredible theologian. And yet if we don't understand that Paul is also a loving and affectionate pastor, we will miss something in this letter. Because when he writes to them, what what this drips with is, is affection for them and love for them. They're a church he knows. They're a church he planted. They're a church he wants to care for. And so every word in this letter is carefully chosen. Paul knew their names. He had heard about them. As Epaphroditus is talking, he'd be going, oh yeah, I remember them. None of these words then in this letter are out of place. There was no email. Paul is aware there's not going to be too many second chances of writing these letters. This is it. And then I've got to get this letter hundreds of miles to get to Philippi. I'm not going to get many opportunities to write, so I'm going to take my time over each word so they hear each word particularly. And also, without doubt, every word is in place because this word is God-breathed, isn't it? For all scripture is God-breathed. So Paul is the author, little a, But God is the author, large He is the one that is speaking through Paul. And so not a word is out of place. There is not a line on this page that is out of place as we examine it. And so my friends, as we examine this letter, we need to take note of every word, don't we? Because they're deliberate. They're purposeful. They're there for a point. And that starts in Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. I submit to you that dedication to understanding every word starts in these very first two verses that we examine today. See, I don't know about you, but when I read a greeting in the Bible, this is the bit that you usually go, blah, 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 verse 3, okay, I thank my God. 
As if to say, well, it's just a greeting. He's just saying, hey. But he's saying way more than that. See, C.J. Mahaney, the founder of Sovereign Grace Ministries, is a man that I've certainly been heavily influenced by when it comes to understanding these opening verses of the text. See, whenever we go through a preaching series, you get loads of commentaries, you see what other people have done, and you bring it all together and you consider, okay, Lord, what what do I want to be saying? What what do I believe is right to be saying to our church? Well, C.J. Mahaney said it brilliantly. He said, in these opening verses of Philippians, we encounter a pregnant prelude. That's brilliant. This isn't just a greeting. This isn't just a, hey. This is a pregnant prelude prelude and so as we encounter in two verses paul's example paul's perspective and paul's motivation we also encounter the primary themes that run through the rest of the book the three primary themes opening in these two verses are the three themes that run through the rest of the book and it is then a pregnant prelude you see before i became a pastor once upon a time all i wanted to do in life was be a professional drummer so I just played drums all the time. And when I was 19, and I actually nearly went to America to the Percussion Institute of Technology, and that's what I wanted to do in my life. I wanted to be a sessions drummer. And as an illustration of that, when I was 18, I used to play in musicals. So I used to play in shows. And so you know the dudes that are in the, in the band underneath the musical? I was one of them, right at the back, because the drummer, so you're, you're so far away. And it would be great for the first few nights, because you'd enjoy the music. After you've done it about 20 times, it all gets a little bit repetitive, and you start playing on auto. But I really enjoyed it. And one of the things I always enjoyed was the piece of music that you played at the start, the prelude. Because that piece of music, you would introduce people to the melody lines of all the songs you were going to do in the show. And so one piece of music showed people exactly where you're going. And if you listen, next time you go to a musical, you'll hear there are refrains that they are using that you'll hear all the way through. Well, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in these opening two verses. This is a musical prelude in writing as he communicates to us where we're going. So three things the remainder of our time that I want us to see. Three points with three primary themes. Number one, Paul's example. Look with me at verse one again. First part of it. Paul and Timothy, servants... That word there is doulos in the Greek. I remember learning that word at, at, when I was at pastor's college because I just thought that is such a crazy word, doulos. I just wanted to call everybody a doulos. It sounds great. And doulos, more actively, doesn't really mean servant. It means slave. So, Paul and Timothy, servants or more literally, slaves of Christ Jesus. You know that word doulos, meaning slave, as it would have been announced, as the church would have gathered in Philippi and this letter would have been read out, they no doubt would have been excited, they're now hearing from Paul, their pastor, the man that founded them. They're gathering around, and this opening verse would have taken their breath away. Paul and Timothy, doulos of Christ Jesus. That's profound. Because in Philippi, they were very aware as a Roman colony what slaves were. Indeed, one amongst them that would have been sitting over somewhere in the congregation used to be a slave girl. And there was therefore connotations with slavery. To say you're a slave, which you have a master, 
You have somebody else that's overseeing your life. You can't just do what you want. There were certain connotations, often negative, with being a slave. And yet Paul very deliberately uses this designated title for himself. You would usually say, Paul the Apostle, not today. For Paul, slave of Christ Jesus. And he's using it very deliberately because he wants them to know that's exactly who he is. For I have been bought with a price. Jesus Christ has bled in my place. He has died in my place. I have been purchased with a price. I am now a slave. I have a king. I have a master. My life is no longer my own. And Paul wants to communicate to them right up front, that's the way he sees himself. And it's a very deliberate, a very deliberate designated title for himself that he is a slave of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he wants to introduce to them the first theme. The theme of slavery and servanthood. A theme that we're going to hear time and time again in the letter My friends, this theme of slavery to Jesus Christ, I I think, is a theme that we needed to be reminded about often, isn't it? See, my kids, I remember when they were born and when they were really little, and there's certain words you just don't have to teach them, right? They just get it. Two of them in particular, mum and mine. They are the two words that kids learn really quick. Mum, they just get that out there. Dad's a little bit harder for them to say, so they usually take a bit longer for that. So they go straight with mum. And then you never have to suggest that, oh, these are yours. They just go, mine. <laughs> and you think, I've never taught them that, or at least I don't think I did, but they've clearly got the message that things are mine. And we'd love to think there's, of as adults, we grow out of that. We don't grow out of that. We just go smarter at covering it up. But we still do it. I remember as I was getting older, my parents would get us lots of gifts at, at Christmas. And even when we were like, you know, 18, 16, and, and, and 14, for, for me and my siblings, we'd have different places. So I'd have the sofa, and they would have one seat. And you'd get concerned if they came near your stuff, because they're yours. And then you get older, and you get married, and you think, I can't wait to be married. This is just beautiful, like Brenda's sharing today, and I just can't wait to be married. You think, that's great, until she starts touching your stuff. And then you're like, wait, you're, you're touching my stuff. What's yours is mine. What's mine's my own. You know, I mean, just give me a break. And we all do it. We all think. I think whether we like it or not, in different degrees, about things being mine. We do it in minor things, but we do it in major things as well. My time. My money. My life. My thoughts. My ideas. My strengths. My gifts. My abilities. My roles. My opportunities. My house. My car. And in certain senses, that's what's happening in the Philippian church, as he writes to them. They're becoming obsessed with what's mine. As he starts to address them, as we'll discover him, selfish ambition, grumbling and complaining, and conflict, and a disunity. Do you know why all those things occur in church life? Selfish ambition, grumbling, complaining, conflict, disunity. You know why they occur? They occur when we become obsessed with ourselves. As if the church is this big. You know, and, and anybody that goes, you know, outside of this, you're like, well, I didn't even like that. What's it going to do with them? And suddenly it all starts. 
Paul then is going to be addressing them in this issue of self. And here's how he does it. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Right at the start, he's helping them see. Philippians, my life and your life is not your own. Because I have been bought with a price. Jesus Christ has died in my place. He has purchased me. And when I became a Christian, I made him the savior and king of my life. I have a master who I will gladly follow in my life. Do you see his wise pastoring? It's brilliant. So we see this theme introduced to us of what it means to be a slave of Christ Jesus. To understand that your life is not your own. Then Paul moves on and he gives us his his perspective. Number two, Paul's perspective. Look at the second half of verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, who's he addressing? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. See, my friends, there's no doubt that we are slaves of Jesus Christ. There is no doubt that we have been bought with a price. There is no doubt that we are called in our lives to follow him as our king. But there is also no doubt that we are his saints. We're people that have been wonderfully saved and set apart through the finished work of Jesus Christ himself. And Paul is going to want us to know that. He's going to want to help us see, yes, you are slaves, but you need to also understand, you're saints in Christ Jesus. Now, make no mistake, we haven't earned sainthood. He says, in Jesus Christ, over a hundred times in his letters. I think when you say something a hundred times, you're trying to make a point. And in these two verses, he says it, Three times in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. You are saints in Christ Jesus. You have not earned this by yourself. You have not done anything to deserve this by yourself. But in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. Because of what he has done, you have been saved and set apart by Jesus Christ himself. Because of Jesus Christ and his finished work, you have been forgiven of your sin. You've been redeemed. You have been justified. Heaven is your home. You've been adopted by the Father. You are a saint. You have been saved by His grace. And I love it. There's not different degrees of sainthood. It's not like, well, you're a saint and, oh, you know, a little bit of saint and could try harder. No. Paul's clear. You're a Christian. Great. You're a saint in Christ Jesus. It's a declaration on your life. It's done. It's something that Jesus has done for you. So he's going to want us to know, yes, you are a slave. But you're also a saint. Saved. Set apart by the Lord in his grace. And my friends, this second theme of sainthood is a theme I think we need to be reminded of often. Because we forget it. Now, now and again, I'll say to Emma, you know, do you just think, do you think, love, I'm sharing the gospel too much? Do you think, you know, because I've been sharing it for 14 years of my life on Sunday mornings with people. And do you think they're getting a bit bored or there's some other stuff? And, and she gives me one of those looks that only, my, only the way my wife can, which I immediately know 
Clearly, I'm carrying on doing what I should be doing, preaching the gospel. But now and again, I I do need that reassurance that, yeah, this is what I'm doing. And one of the places that I always find reassurance is a wonderful hymn by Arabella Catherine Hankey. She wrote this sometime between 1834 and 1911. And this is what she says, and I think it's true. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in, that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often. For I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away by noon. So tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. My friends, I believe Miss Hankey was right. We need to be told the gospel regularly. We need to be told the gospel often. Why? Because we forget so soon. Indeed, by the time the early dew of morning has gone, so often is our grasp on the gospel. And when we lose sight of the gospel, there are many perils. When we lose sight of Christ and Him crucified and the reality that in Christ we are saints, the temptation to legalism begins to comprehend in our lives. The temptation to base our relationship with God on our own performance, i.e. legalism. The temptation in our lives towards condemnation. That sense that you're just so overwhelmed with your sin and unaware of God's grace. That temptation towards subjectivism. Basing our view on God, on on our changing feelings and emotions. Rather than this word and what he's declared you to be as saints. My friends, when we lose sight of the gospel, everything changes. When we lose sight of the gospel, when we lose our grip on the gospel, we are always going to be tempted towards condemnation, towards subjectivism, towards legalism in our lives. And it is for that reason, and that reason alone, that I will, by the grace of God, while I have the joy of being your senior pastor, hopefully until the day I die, or at least get very old and can barely speak anymore, to keep telling you about Jesus. Keep telling you about the gospel. Why? Because we forget it every single week of our lives. We sing about it, we hear about it, we assume we will never need to get told again because we've got it, and then we arrive at church the next week and we realize, I have forgot this. Or minimally in the way I live my life, I forgot this. I know it here, but I don't know it here. It's not functioning in my life. By the grace of God, then, I will continue to ring the silver bell of the gospel in this life. And in this church. And I'm so grateful to Paul's example in this. Because he's the one I'm following. Who considered nothing more important than Christ and him crucified. So that's what he was going to keep telling them. 
I'm so grateful then for this letter, this book of Philippians, because in it we not only see slavehood, we see sainthood. We see him declaring time and time again, Sovereign Grace, this is who you are. This is who God's made you. This is the one who holds you. This is what he's done for you. You are in Christ Jesus. So put all your stuff down that you're bringing, thinking that somehow this adds to your salvation. Put it all down and realize you're a son and daughter in him because it's in him. I love this man and I love his message. I love the fact that it's God-breathed and it's going to be breathing on us each and every week. In one verse, then, we see two major themes, the theme of slaves, the theme, then, of sainthood. And then in verse 2, we see Paul's motivation. And in that, we are introduced to the third theme, which is grace and peace. Look at verse 2. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great verse. Because in this verse you get to hear and examine and see Paul's motivation, his his hopes, his desires, his prayers for the church in Philippians. You see his, his meditations, what his hopes are. As he's penning this letter, he's got something in mind. He's got a motivation going on. And as he's thinking about them and loving them with tenderly affection, as he scribes to them, there's one thing, there's one hope, there's one motivation that grips him in the way he's writing. And it's that they may know and experience the glorious grace and peace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he wants to tell them is to, is in desire and hope that they would know and experience the grace and peace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That they may be reminded of all that God has done for them. That they may grow in their grip of grace. And as a fruit of that grip of grace, a fruit and not a root, grace is the root. As a fruit of that grip of grace, they would experience peace. See, where peace is present in somebody's life, they will be very aware and apprehending grace. And where there is a lack of peace in somebody's life, every time there is a lack of the grip of grace, of the one who holds them, the one who has them, the one who will never let them go. And so it is Paul's hope as he writes and pens this letter that the church in Philippi would know and experience the grace and peace of God towards them. That as they examine his words, as he encourages them through his words, that they would know his grace and experience his peace. And as we now re-speak this letter to you over the next 21 weeks, for Brendan and I, I want you to know that's our motivation as well. We want us to see grace. We want us to know peace. I want this church to grow ever increasingly in our grip of grace so that we may experience more and more peace in our lives. So my friends, as we begin in this study on the letter of Philippians, I'm excited about it. I'm in great anticipation towards it because this is a great book. We have three clear themes, theme of slavery, understanding that we have a master and his name is Jesus Christ. And that's a great thing that our lives are not our own, that we've been bought with a price and we have one to follow who is our king. 
theme of sainthood, how we realize that it's all in Christ, that he's done it all for us. And we'll see time and time again the wonderful melody line of grace and peace coming through as you realize time and time again Paul, as a loving pastor, is seeking to bring grace and peace to his hearers in this moment. And I pray that that would be our experience as well as we examine this. And so my friends, I want to encourage you, would we come then ready each and every week to encounter God in his word? Because this is his word. This is him. This is him talking to us, communicating to us. Having made us and saved us. He said, hey, listen, well, I've got something I want to tell you. So let's come ready for that, amen? Let's come ready. Say, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm listening. I, I want to hear you. Help me see you. Help me hear you. And here then is what I think we can anticipate as we examine this book. We, will, we can anticipate by the grace of God, his grace and peace. So I trust today has helped to whet your appetite, to help you to see where we're going, who wrote this, when he wrote it, what the background is. And I hope you've heard the tunes that we're going to be hearing again and again and again of slavery, of sainthood, of grace and peace. And in and through it all, would we hear his voice above ours? Amen. Would our lives be changed? My friends, the best way I can serve you as we conclude this time, is by praying for you that God would give us all grace to listen each and every week. So let's just close our eyes and we're going to conclude that way. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that as we prayed at the start, it is a double-edged sword. It is so strong and powerful. And Lord, as we gather under it then, over these next 20 or so weeks, Lord, would we hear your voice? Would we hear your still voice in our minds? Would we hear your small voice in our hearts? And would our lives be changed as we realize we do have a master? My life isn't my own just to do what I want. I'm a slave of of you. You are our king. As we realize that we are saints in you, forgiven, redeemed, adopted, Oh Lord, in and through it all, would our experience, as is your desire, be grace and peace? Would we know it? And would we experience it? And would we treasure it? In Jesus' precious name. Amen.